Hey everybody, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Jeremy. We are the Evangelicals. How do people know that you're a Christian? Maybe maybe you don't want people to know that you're a Christian these days, you know? Ninja Christian. You got to explain that. In, in disguise, I don't want people to know that... You know, you ninjas wear the mask. So you don't know who they are. They're in in and out before you don't even know it. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I remember being a part of Good News Club and some organizations or functions where we would talk about witnessing and sharing the good news. But as you get older, maybe it's not as cool to share the good news and the militant way that you do when you're younger you maybe become less thrilled about walking around and handing out tracks and that's for some people i mean there are some people that you know love to run around and tell people the truth of the gospel in a uh, sort of you know militant evangelical kind of way but this is not the way that jesus said we would know people people would know that we are his disciples but he said the trademark of an evangelical of somebody with the good news is that they love one another Today we're talking about the way that people perceive us as Christians in the world. How do people do people dread when they see us coming? What does it mean to be an evangelical Christian and what uh, what's the most important important component of our witness in the world today? By virtue of this we are talking today about our attitude. <laughs> I think it just, just just maybe kicking this off reminds me of First Peter three. I think a lot of times we think we need to like go out and and be obnoxious or or shout it from the the street corners, you know, be the bullhorn guy. But I think Peter just gives us the simple instruction: Hey, when people ask, ask you for the reason for the hope that you have. And so I think people really see in essence who we are when we're squeezed or when life hits, you know, life gets tough, our true essence, our true um, ethos, maybe is a Greek word that means just the essence of who you are really tends to come out in, in ways that are even more profound than when life is good. And so I think, you know, I think that's when Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, hey, if you follow these words in mind, when the rains come and the winds blow, if you're built and your life is based on these words of mine on this rock, then you'll be able to withstand that. But if you don't, the wind will come, the wind will blow, and you're going to fall um, because your foundation is sand or brittle uh, on some level. What are your vibes that you're putting off? How do people perceive you? We want to challenge you today to be be a little introspective. Be honest with yourself. Um. When, when people think about Jonathan, that's me, do they, do they hope that I don't show up at the party, you know? Because if I show up, or, am I going to be argumentative? Am I going to be a downer, <laughs> you know? Am I going to talk, talk about topics that make people feel awkward and uneasy, you know? Or, of course you are. <laughs> yeah, no, I probably, I actually probably am. <laughs> you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I've not been invited to a party in quite some time. <laughs> oh, this is going so terribly. <laughs> uh, let's think about you. Stop thinking about me. Let's, let's, let's think, about, think about the listener today. So, 
So anyway, Paul talks a lot, believe it or not, about attitude. Yeah. And it's it's really fascinating because Paul is someone who experienced a lot of persecution in his life. The most famous passage probably, uh, arguably, in Paul, at least in Philippians for sure, is the kenosis passage where he talks about Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Well, right before that passage, he says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The kenosis passage begins with that phrase, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then immediately following that passage, he goes on to talk about our witness as Christians in the world. He says this in verse 14 of Philippians 2, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, as if he's speaking to modern day 21st century America. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. The way that Paul envisions Christians standing out in the world is that they're people who do not grumble and complain or argue. It's their attitude that is to be their signature in the world. It seems like a lot of churches back then must have had an issue with this because I feel like Paul says this on almost every one of his letters is do everything without grumbling and complaining. Hey, if you want to really show the world who Jesus is, it's not going to be like, I I think that maybe even this passage, but he says, you're going to devour each other. You're going to, to literally tear each other apart. And the spirit of Jesus, the spirit, when the Holy Spirit is living in us, we actually should be building each other up rather than tearing each other down. And I think it has uh, just even later in Philippians 4, uh, the more we're just even talking about this in this brief time we've talked about it, it seems like Philippians 4 is more about attitude. I mean, you got to think Paul's writing this from prison. So if anybody had a reason to complain, if anybody had a reason to be upset about life, it's this guy, Paul, especially a God, because he's in prison for preaching the gospel or living the gospel. And and yet he this whole letter is about having the attitude of Jesus, having the mind of Jesus, being humble and and you know, even the whole Kenosis passage is this understanding of why do you think you're any better than than Jesus, be content in all the things, and then I want to pause you right there. Okay, sorry. I you just, no, I just think you just stepped on stepped on a bomb. I mean, think about it. We in America, we Christians in America in the twenty first century, find ourselves getting mad at God, angry at God. Very few of us did God call to Macedonia, and did we get flogged and thrown into prison for following the voice of God? Right. Yeah, But I mean, this is Paul's situation. <laughs> he follows God and he gets beat up for it. He gets thrown in prison. But yeah, what does Paul say? He says, count it all joy. Yeah. And right? Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. I say it again. Yes. And then he says, I rejoiced greatly. Um, I mean, we get upset when somebody in the news says something about us. Like the, the, that may not even be true. But we get upset and say we're persecuted. And I'm like, yeah, but I've never experienced it to the point of, once again, being put in prison. Um, But then he says, 
you were concerned about me and you ha- and you had an opportunity to show it. He's like, I'm not saying this because I'm in need for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he drops the the bomb that I think potentially we've taken out of context a little bit. He says this, because I can do all this through him who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. But in this context, it takes on a whole different meaning. It doesn't mean that God's going to, that I can climb this mountain or I'm going to can win this football game or I can do this. The all things I think that Paul is talking about is that whatever the circumstance I've learned to be content, whether I'm in prison <laughs> writing you this letter, whether I once again have a ton of of things or have nothing um, in the midst of wherever I find myself through Christ, I can do, I can, I can live this life of contentment and joy and peace. I feel like this is an area in which we have completely failed pedagogically in teaching our children what scripture means. I mean, probably the most uh, popular citation of Philippians 4.13 over the last decade was under Tim Tebow, the quarterback for Florida's eyes. He would have Philippians, P-H-I-L written on one on one cheek, right? And then 413 on the other one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I hear, I hear children at church saying, you know, this is their favorite scripture. And they say it every, every week before they play basketball or football or soccer. And the fact of the matter is that Philippians 4.13 has nothing to do with what you can do in sports. Right. I mean, just absolutely nothing to do with how much money you can make. It doesn't have anything to do with your success in life. It has nothing to do with the American dream. But we have taken Philippians 4.13, a, a verse that was, just as you said, all about suffering for Christ, perseverance in the midst of trials. And we've taken that to mean I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And that's and that's or or I can do whatever I think I can do. Yeah. And then I'm gonna put I'm gonna put God's name on it. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, God is not as concerned with you winning a game or gaining wealth for yourself as much as he is with you cultivating the character of Jesus in your lifetime. And I think I think that's something that we don't think about often. Uh, I, I said that Paul said er, er, earlier that Paul was one that said count it all joy. It was actually James. Okay. And James says, James in, says in James <laughs> 1, consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance develops character, and character gives us hope, and hope does not disappoint us, right? Mm-hmm. The early apostles, they had this understanding that trials were good, because they would develop Christian character in us. And what could be better to walk around with in this life than mature Christian character, than joy? Uh, But the fact of the matter is, I think we run from struggle. Somehow we've bought into this element of the prosperity gospel, this idea that if we're facing struggles, we must be doing something wrong. But the early church had a completely opposite worldview. If you are facing struggles or trials, you must be doing something right. Yeah. That the adversary would kind of come after you in sort of a Job kind of way, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I think it reminds me, too, of 
once again, it, I think it really hits at this whole understanding of like point of reference. So in, in the Psalms, you know, you brought up prosperity gospel and you brought up these, and there's a couple of verses, but it reminds me of a specific passage in Psalms where he says, um, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart or something to that yeah, effect. Yeah. Um, but, the part we, forward, yeah. but the part we, I don't think we really focus a whole lot on is the part where it says, delight yourself in the Lord. Um, it it reminds, you know, the whole Proverbs, um, acknowledge God in all your ways and he will guide your paths yeah. and make your path straight. But part of, I think, what the where we've done disservice, once again, is the prosperity gospel has taken it over and saying, see, God's going to give you all the desires of your heart. But I think the first part is maybe the most important is that we delight in the Lord. And so what happens is it's no longer my desires and God giving me what I want, but now all of a sudden my desires are transformed into what God delights in. And so, yeah, God's going to give me my desires because I am delighting and wanting to see the world like he wants to see the world. I'm wanting to see things happen the way that he wants to see things happen. And, and so it's no longer me selfishly asking God for all of the things that I want. It's now me praying the prayer, God, I want your kingdom to come in my life. And so therefore, God's going to give me that desire because my desire is now his desire. So the point of reference is off. It's not me living my life, getting all the things that I want, you know, living the American dream, getting the big house, you know, to... 0.5 kids, a white pick and fence, a dog and a cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this understanding of, no, now my my will and my understanding, my desires are God's desires, God's understanding of how he wants the world to work. And when that becomes my will and my desires, well, then of course God's going to give me everything that I desire because it's no longer me living. I've died to all of those things. It's now desiring what he wants. And, and I think we believe that God ultimately is going to get what he wants. Does that make sense? That, well, that was probably totally. way, I don't know if that made sense if I explained it I mean, well really, this is the historical conversation in the church from the early church on about sanctification. Yeah. We believe that God does not leave us where we are. I just preached a couple weeks ago about the story of Peter at the end of John, where Jesus comes to him after he's been fishing all night, and he says, do you love me? And Peter gets upset that Jesus is asking him three times, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, of course I love you. And Jesus says, well, Peter, if you if you love me, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Love for me fundamentally requires a shift in your priorities where you stop thinking about the things that you want to do and would do and that you do the things that I'm calling you to do. The gift of the Holy Spirit to us is transforming us. It's Augustine who says God is the one working in us and it's by his it's by God's spirit uh transforming us taking away desires that are not of God and replacing them with desires that are of God. Historically throughout the history of the church people have actually believed that God can dwell in us so much that our desires actually become the desires of God, that we become then, and that's how we become in the world, the hands and the feet, the emanation, the outflowing of Godness in us is this transformation that happens, and primarily it's seen in our attitude, in our disposition toward the world. Uh, or Galatians chapter 5, yeah. the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. The result of the Spirit living in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. After my 
sophomore year of college, I went and spent the summer in Sicily, and we had a Bible study that was kind of open to the youth and college age people around uh, that area of Palermo, Sicily, where we were staying. And there was this guy named Marco who who became my friend and would come to the Bible study. And I think that he was Catholic uh, in the sense that he was maybe baptized in the Catholic faith or culturally speaking, but wasn't really committed to Christianity in any confessional way. And we were really, we were reading Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 begins with this passage where Paul says, don't live like the world, these people that live in debauchery and immorality following the desires of their flesh. But by the Spirit, you know, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Marco brilliantly says, nobody lives like this, speaking of the fruits of the Spirit. He's like everybody lives like this, like the other, like the other way, like the following the desires of their flesh. He says it's honestly impossible to live like this. And what he was describing was the situation of his friends, the situation of the world that he lived in. He had lost faith because he didn't see anyone around him who was confessing to be a Christian living out the fruits of the spirit. And this is why, honestly, I think we have such a issue with atheism is in the world it's the it's what brandon manning said uh christians who acknowledge jesus with their lips but walk out the door and let him down by their lifestyle this is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable i think yeah so you know we in in holiness circles sanctification circles the big word is this credibility gap what we say compared to what we live. And I think that, that as we, as we grow in grace, once again, when, when we get pushed, the true essence of who we are seems to spill out. And I think a lot of heading back to this, once again, just this point of reference. So how do we, how do we have contentment? How do we live in a world that preaches one understanding about life and what culture says and, and really try to have this understanding of, yeah, but that's not who God is calling us to be. How do I delight in the Lord? How do I acknowledge him with my life? How do I submit to him? And if, if that's, how do I make that my point of reference? I was listening to another podcast and uh, it's called the happiness lab. It's really good. And it's, it's by a professor from either Yale or Harvard, or I don't know, I think they played each other in football. So one of those smart <laughs> Ivy League schools this past week, but um, they played football this past week. And um, and she she does this class about how do you be happy in the world? And she says it's, it they have to do it in an auditorium because just everybody's trying to figure out what is it, how do I be happy? And, um, and so she's, one of the episodes, I think it's the ep- second episode, talks about people who win the silver medal. And like at the Olympics? At the Olympics, yeah, at the Olympic Games, sorry. And, you know, gold, bronze, silver, and bronze are the three medals. And she talks about how people who win the silver medal most often will have grimaces on their face. They don't seem to be happy. She told one story about uh, probably a power lifter who didn't even let them put the medal on her around her head. I mean, she was just so yeah. mad. Yeah. Um, and she's like, how could that be? You just you're one of the top three people in the world in this sport. How in the world could you be upset? And she said it was all based on point of reference. So she said for a silver medalist, 
you're upset because you didn't get gold. You were that close to getting gold. The gold medalist is obviously happy. And then she looked at the bronze medalist and said, hey, for them, the point of reference is one more spot down. They don't even get a medal. And so they're right. just happy to be on the platform. Yeah. But the silver medalist, she did. It wasn't, they weren't quite good enough to get gold. And so they're upset. They, they worked their whole life for this one moment and they didn't achieve their goal. And so she, this whole podcast is just about our happiness, our contentment, is largely dependent on who are we referencing in our life? Who am I comparing myself to? Who, who is that person or that thing that I'm trying to strive for that either I haven't gotten, so I'm upset, or this person has way more than me, and so I'm upset because I'm not living that life. And so I think that's a, as Christians, what's our point of reference, I guess, would be a great question. How do we not get caught up in the game, but what is our point of reference as Christians? Jeremy, so this is this is awesome. You're pointing to, I think, a major problem of spiritual formation in the church in North America in the 21st century. So I don't want to like make you feel bad about how pathetic your devotional life is, everybody, okay? Because <laughs> it probably is. But I, I do want you to think about this just in the in the frame of reference that Jeremy just gave us. Kind of what are you comparing yourself to? How much time do you spend on social media versus how much time do you spend either in the word of God or serving the poor, those without clothes, those in prison, the, the Matthew 25 passage? The, the thing that social media does primarily to our minds is it gives us a point of reference that is not healthy. Well, it's not it gives, true. It gives us a point of reference that compares our lives fundamentally to other people and that compares it to only the highlights right. of other people's lives. Yep. Being this kind of element of, is that what you meant by not true? Like, exactly right. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not get, a true picture yeah. of who those people Absolutely. are. Absolutely. You don't get the full, you don't get the full picture. You just get a glimpse, a highlight reel glimpse, Right. But what we're, what we're doing to ourselves in our social media culture is we are programming our minds to have this gold, this a silver medal frame of reference, to have this continual grimace in our attitude and in our lives. Because what we do is we sit in our homes isolated from people in reality, looking at these highlight reels of other people's lives. All the more, our devotional lives are struggling. You know, we're, we're not... We're not framing our lives around prayer, scripture, and the service of those that Jesus commands us to, to serve. Working on several different college campuses, whenever a young person would come to me and say that they were depressed or having a really difficult time in their life spiritually, I would always say to those students, there is a nursing home down the street. Yeah. Here's the name of an individual. Go spend an hour sitting with this person and talking about life, getting into their their space. Hardly anyone ever took me up on that opportunity. And those that did would without fail say, you know what? My perspective is different. Yeah. Because the frame of reference is different. Absolutely. You know, but, but this is spiritual formation. And this is why, this is why in the church, we try to encourage people with their downtime to spend time reading scripture, talking to God or serving because those three things primarily shift your frame of reference. That is spiritual formation. But we are so obsessed with our devices. Netflix. Netflix 
ruins spiritual formation. I mean, I mean, it just does. It does. If you spend as much time serving the elderly, serving the impoverished, serving the person down the street, serving your spouse, for goodness sake, as much time as you spent watching sports or Netflix, your life would be compl- would be fundamentally different. So she goes on to, to say in this podcast, and I think this one is just expands this even more. She, they did a survey of people and it was all based upon how much money they made. So, but the survey went, hey, you're going to make 100000 or you're going to make $50,000 and everybody that you work with is going to make, most of them are going to make less than you do. So is she asked, are they like, they're, they're polling people? Yeah, they're is polling people okay. and, and, and trying to say, tell me which one of these would make you happier. Okay, so in the one category is I would make... $50,000. But everybody I work with makes less potentially than I do. So I'm on the higher end of the pay scale yes. in my business or in that job. Or you can work in another job. You're going to make $100,000, so double what you would make at the other one. But you're going to be on the lower end. There's going to be people making two hundred or 250000 or even more. And she said what was so fascinating is it came back that most people chose, I'd rather make the $50,000 and be on the top end because the point of reference was I'm doing better than all of these people rather than making double the amount of money and be, but once again, she was just trying to point out that unfortunately our happiness and contentment is based on other people rather than just looking at my own life and the blessings or the the good things that I have. Um, or even looking at people, we, and maybe the point is we always look to people who have more rather than people who may be in the world and and understanding that the rest of the world lives on potentially way less than I do. I, I heard one guy say, he's like, a lot of times we, we hear the word rich and we never think of ourselves. He's like, but in a world context, potentially people in, in middle-class America, like we are the rich oh, people. We're wealthy. Yeah, we are wealthy. And, and, and so it's just interesting, the perspective. And so then you look at Paul in this letter like he's not looking at all of the other people thinking, I want to be that. He's looking at Jesus in the whole kenosis passage and saying, if my mind is to be like him who didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, why am I, why is my point of reference any different than the person who humbled himself, took the very nature of a servant, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death in the worst kind of way in that context and if that's my point of reference, if that's if that's the goal is to be like Jesus, then I could be in prison and be content because I am, once again, as you said earlier, being persecuted is, is actually a blessing because of Jesus, once again, is the point of reference. And that's where spiritual formation comes in. What am I, who am I, what is the goal of my life? What am I striving for to make the more money, to, to be like that person? Or spiritual formation pushing me to be more like Jesus. So you you kind of shifted my thinking towards just the the popular understanding of like what am I living for? And I and I think that really culturally we're living for personal gratification. Yeah. All of us feel very entitled to that which is mine. We really have a spirit of in, of entitlement. I got and my we, rights, man. Oh, yeah, the, the right, and that's that's yeah. Culturally, nationally, it's very much a part of our identity. There, there's this there's this movement right now of self care. 
that is rising up where where um, people are suggesting that the best thing you can do is care for yourself. Now there are some elements of self-care that are that are healthy and good. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, presupposing that we do love ourselves. I mean, there are some people, and maybe some of you listening to this podcast, who have a very unhealthy self-perception. And we need to we need to work on loving ourselves. Yeah. In many senses, we our our discontent grows out of our lack of love and appreciation for ourselves and our own being, just gratitude for it. But uh, anyway, back to the the self the self care movement. We we think that the way to fill ourselves up or the way to feel gratified is by caring for ourselves or giving ourselves more pleasure for ourselves is the way to fill ourselves up. But the fact of the matter is, the more you gratify your fleshly desires, the more you want. Our appetites, they only grow. And we only grow in dissatisfaction as we try to satisfy our fleshly desires. This is why addiction is so prevalent, you know? Um, But what Paul is getting at in this Philippians chapter 2 passage is this idea of kenosis, of emptying, Mm -hmm. of self-emptying. The Christian worldview is this. That one is only full by emptying oneself. The only way to try to find true meaning in life, to find true happiness, is to resign to oneself. Is to, uh, as uh, Paul says, is to take up one's cross. Mm. Is to follow Jesus. It's by embracing self-emptying that you find true joy. By allowing God's spirit to overwhelm and overtake you. By by moving out of the way. By trying to empty oneself. This is how you find real fulfillment. It can, yeah. And, and once again, just the image of, of what, of Paul in prison, who probably had a lot of needs. You know, I don't think the prison system back then was kind of like it was today. And I think that's part of what he's talking about is you depended on your your friends to bring you food. Like, oh, yeah. it's not like they had three courses, you know, they didn't have three meals. And I'm not saying anything about the justice system. I think people should be fed and taken sure, care sure, of. Sure. I, I'm yeah. not saying that, but I'm just saying yeah. the, the context is way different. When we hear prison and we think prison, we think, oh, well, he had this, 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 and this. And it wasn't that at all. Yeah. And yet you have... This guy who's saying, man, I just learned, I just learned, I'm rejoicing. I've learned to be content because once again, his point of reference was not the person living in the palace or the person who had the cars or whatever. It was, it was Jesus. And in that, and in that scenario, in that situation, it was, yeah, of course, of course. I, I don't know if you've seen the video. I think a church made it. Um, and, you know, you just dogged Facebook, but I actually saw it on Facebook, but and it was actually a good thing. <laughs> It's a video, um, and it's about being grateful in, in essence. And and so the guy, it's it's a video of a guy and his family, and and literally everything um, throughout his morning is gift wrapped. So he comes downstairs and like his his coffee cup is is wrapped, and he's like, 
oh man, I, I get to drink coffee. His kids have gift wrap on them. Uh, his his breakfast, he wow. has to open it up and it's it's a gift and he goes wow. to the faucet and the faucet's got it's got wrapping paper on it and and then he goes out and like he has a brief his kids bring him his briefcase and he's like i got a job and and then he goes outside and his car has wrapping present and he's like it's just this interesting um just everything in the video is kind of identified as a gift right unbelievable yeah and how we but once again we don't look at the things we have and be grateful for them we look at what we don't have and it's that point of reference again. It's just this, it's like a minute and a half. It's it's just, it's just a brilliant, it's very creative, but it just makes you stop and 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 actually look at all of the things that that we do have. And I and I watched it and I was thinking, it's brilliant. Well, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Well, yeah. And I I think a lot about my own children and the attitude in our home. If my kids aren't grateful, it's because I'm not grateful. Yeah. I mean, really, raising children, I, it ought to make you look hard in the mirror. You know? What are the vibes? What are the ethos of your home that you're cultivating? Are we just all just cultivating materialism? Are we all just cultivating entitlement? Or are we cultivating humility, joy, and service? Do my kids see... A dad that is just grateful to everyone that I come into contact with, that just praises God for all of the blessings. Am I someone who recognizes that it is all a gift? It's all grace, man. Yeah. It's all grace. Um, this this is just something that I that I'm I'm thinking about recently as we're spending a lot more time inside in the house as it's getting cold outside, you know. We love playing outside and going on bike rides and walks and playground in the in the summer. But we're spending a lot more time together. And my wife and I were we've really been talking recently about the vibes of our home. Are they uh indicative of the attributes of Jesus, of the fruit of the spirit? And how are we demonstrating to our children attitudes and opportunities for of and for gratitude, of contentment, you know? Because these are to be the signatures of Christianity, of evangelicalism in the world. And I think to even expand the metaphor, how are we in the church providing an example to our youth and our kids yeah. about what does it mean to be the church? Um, reading a book, again, called Almost Christian by a, an author named Kinda Cressadine, who's a professor at Princeton. And she was talking about how a lot of times in the church, we want to look at the youth culture and like blame them and say, how can they be like that? And blah, 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 blah. And the whole point of the book is the only reason they're like that is because we've given them that example. Exactly right. And we want to throw shade at them and we want to blame them and we want to point fingers at them. And she's like, but we really need to understand that they're just living into the gospel that they have heard and seen in our own lives. And, and, and so how do we as a church understand that church isn't just a place where you come to learn about being a nice person and being good, and but it is this countercultural. It is this this life emptying call to be for God and for the other with everything that you are, and so we can't blame them because they are just emulating and living out what they've been taught and what they've seen lived in the house and in our congregations 
each and every day. One of the most heartbreaking seasons, I think, for me in the church was listening to a bunch of baby boomers several months ago or a year ago or whenever this was happening just complain about millennials. It seemed like there was this season. Did you experience that at all where people were just complaining about millennials all the time? I feel like every older generation complains about the generation coming. I mean, I, I mean, I, that could be a generalization, yeah, yeah, but no, I think that it's it's a... Unfortunately, in our culture, it just seems to be because they they don't do it like we did it, and yeah. they don't. Have, and so I, but I, I'm, I've heard it. Yeah, it was, and it, it probably was also brought on by the that Simon Sinek was doing these was doing these videos, and so a lot of people were talking about it because he was talking about it, and sure. it was getting generated on social media and this type of thing. Sure. But what was so sad to me is I'm listening to these these baby boomers who have lived for themselves for decades, who are filthy rich. Who are who are entitled? Who bounce back and forth between their Florida home and their you know Lima, Ohio home? Just complain about the attitudes of these entitled millennials. And I'm just thinking to myself, how do you not see that they're just doing exactly what you're doing, but they're annoying to you because they don't have the resources that you have to do what you're doing. So they're doing what they've learned to do all throughout their lives: complain, kick, and scream. Bef- until you give them what they want, you know. I mean, but 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 it's just it's this uh, culturally in the church. I don't know that we've done any better than the world. The, the crisis that we have in the church is a crisis of parenting. It really is. It's a crisis of discipleship, of not passing on. It's a crisis of people spending so much of their time inwardly focused on their own self care and their self spiritual life. That they're not serving, you know? Middle-aged people, look in the mirror. Old people, look in the mirror. Millennials, look in the mirror. I mean, who are you living for? Nobody owes you anything, okay? Nobody owes you a thing. However, you owe your entire life to the one who breathed life into you. Yeah, That's the only one that's entitled and what does the entitled one do? But come to earth yeah. and die on a cross. And and one of his last words on the cross are, God, Father, forgive them. Mm. They have no idea what they're doing. They're clueless. Yeah. They're completely turned in on themselves. So I think the problem can feel very overwhelming because to change the big picture takes time. But I think the way that we change the big picture is we just start with with ourselves. And and so how can I have more contentment? How can I have more joy? And, and not just when things go well, but maybe even when they don't go well. Yeah. And how can I model for my children, for the people of our church, for the world? Because I think that's when people really see and are changed. Um, <laughs> this is going to be silly, but, and, and maybe I shouldn't bring it up, but I'm going to, um, how the Grinch stole Christmas. Why shouldn't you bring up the Grinch? I love me some Grinch. I don't know. I don't know if we're trying to, to end and maybe this is the way we end, but one thing um, I think is really brilliant about that is, as you know, he takes all their stuff and yet they still sing. They still have this joy, even though all of the things that we would put value in, they don't have it. There's not there and they still sing. It's a and sweet scene. Yeah. It's beautiful. But what's so amazing is that's what actually changes the Grinch's heart. 
is joy in the midst of not having. Yeah. He sees that and thinks there must be something different. Yeah. And, 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 and so I think the way that we witness to the world mm-hmm. is in the pain, in the suffering, when I'm not getting all the things that I want, there's still some type of joy and contentment that isn't based on the circumstance. It's based on maybe I am becoming more like Jesus. Maybe I am following in his footsteps and there's a joy and a contentment in that. Amen. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. The podcast we referenced today was The Happiness Lab with Dr. Lori Santos.